Welcome to Coach to Scale, how modern leaders build coaching cultures. I'm your host, Matt Benelli. Join me as we build a community of like-minded professionals who share the belief that effective coaching improves the performance of every team member. Our mission is to help leaders become better coaches. The Coach to Scale podcast is sponsored by Coachem, the world's first AI coaching execution platform that leverages evidence-based coaching to increase quota attainment. And with that, let's get started. All right, everybody, you're in for a real treat today. Um, I'm excited to sit down with with our guest. She's an expert at helping uh, startups uh, solve their management and culture challenges. She's an entrepreneur. She's a board advisor. She's an educator. She's an author. Uh, and, and she comes with a great perspective, a uh, bachelor's degree uh, from Georgetown, MBA, and PhD from the Wharton School. Currently, uh, she's a professor at the Georgetown uh, McDonough School of Business, and she's also an author of the best-selling book, Bringing Up the Boss. Rachel Pacheco, welcome to Coach to Scale. Thank you, Matt. I'm so excited to be here with you. Uh, excited to have you. And uh, I forgot to mention uh, a, a, a yogi, a, a practi- practitioner uh, of yoga, which uh, is, is how we came into meeting each other. So uh, Rachel, really excited to sit down and have this conversation with you because you wear a lot of different hats as a um, as an educator, as a as an advisor, someone who has sits on boards and works with companies solving all different types of management challenges. And uh, you know that's that's what we're talking about today. But as I'm sure you've seen along your journey, Rachel, there's a lot of myths that pop up. Um, in in this crazy world and in, in this business, what's a myth about coaching that you believe is misleading or maybe even complete BS? Yeah, so it's such a great question, and you know I'm sure, and I know you've heard on 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 this podcast before that you know there's a big myth around motivation, right? That we think employees, you know, especially salespeople, that they're just motivated by by chasing money. So that's a common myth, but I want to actually extend that myth to the myth that um, employees don't need to find meaning in what they do in the day-to-day, and even more so, that managers and leaders have no part in helping them find meaning. So we have this myth that uh, meaning, especially for, for folks in the sales realm, is not a, you know, is not a critical component of the job, and that leaders and, and managers have no part in helping their, their teams find meaning. It's actually the exact opposite. Meaning is, is front and center from what we see in, you know, in research and surveys and what employees want and crave in their day-to-day. And managers and leaders have a critical responsibility and role in helping their team members find that meaning and purpose day-to-day. So you're equating meaning and meaning and purpose, right? So we can use those two interchangeably for the most part. Yeah, and and what's and it's a great question because what we often think about in terms of meaning and purpose is what I like to call kind of big M meaning or big M pur- or big P purpose, right? Like, what am I doing with my life? What's my life purpose? Um, but what we actually see is that 
meaning and purpose is a day-to-day set of actions and behaviors. It's the day-to-day purpose you find or the day-to-day meaning you find in your day that really matters. And I think what happens a lot is that, you know, managers and leaders are incredibly busy and incredibly time constrained. And the thought of coaching someone on finding their, their life meaning, right? It's like, go to a yoga retreat for that. (laughs) Speaking of yoga. Um, But it's actually this day-to-day meaning um, in, 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 in what we do with our colleagues that are at, at work, it's that meaning that's really, really important and, um, and again, needs to be central in, in how people think about and, and do their work. So, uh, you know, there's perhaps some managers out there who are like, well, what do you mean? My, my job is to make sure my people are, are doing their job. You know, they come in, they have a number to hit in, in, in the sales realm, they have a number to hit, and, you know, I just need to make sure they do it. And what I hear you saying is, uh, yeah, but um, how do you help them find meaning in their work? Why is the juice worth the squeeze for that manager to, to go make the extra effort to do that in a in a time crunched world? Yeah. So um, what research show, shows us is that folks who have more meaning in their in their day to day work are more fulfilled, more satisfied, and more engaged right? But to your question of, well, what about the juice? We also see that employees are more productive when they have that that meaning. So there's this great research um, from Adam Grant, who I'm sure many of your, your listeners know about, where he actually looked at call centers, right? And you can think of call centers as the, you know, outcome generating, right? Like I'm being paid for uh, the, the the calls that I make and, and the money that I bring in. And, and what he showed was that when he was able to bring more meaning into uh, the, the call center, and he did that by bringing in um, folks who benefited from the, you know, from the output of the call center, yeah. he found that employees were more satisfied and more engaged, and they were more productive at making those outbound calls to solicit donations. So it's both satisfaction and engagement and happier workers and it's productivity, which I think is such an important piece to remember when we're trying to rationalize, you know, why might be I why might I be spending extra time on helping my team members find meaning? Fair to say they're they're more productive uh, and effective during the day and they stay longer in their ro- in their role and both of those are are good for companies. I, I mean, I think that's kind of a rhetorical question. Um, so, one of the one of the challenges that a lot of managers and leaders share uh, with with me is, you know, or one of the questions they ask is, how, how do I how do I motivate this person? And you know, uh, uh, there's an axiom that I've heard time and time again that you know, uh, you know, pro- prospects buy for their reasons on their timelines all the time. And if you extend that, you know, salespeople come to work for their reasons, not their managers, right? Employees come to work for their reasons, not their bosses' reasons. Um, this is that. Do we get to the point of like extrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation here, right? Extrinsic, like wave the carrot and the and the gift certificate and the Starbucks card or the the trip, the money. But 
what you're talking about, purpose, doesn't that tie back into more intrinsic motivation? Like they kind of motivate themselves? It's, yeah, it's such a good, it's such a good question. It's actually both, right? And I think the, um, the really important thing you highlighted in, in your description was that managers might have a different set of motivators than their employees. And those different motivators might be intrinsic and they might be extrinsic. Okay. And so actually the really important thing to remember with motivation is that each of your team members is motivated by something different. And then as managers and leaders, we need to understand and figure out what uniquely drives our team members and then, you know, structure incentives if possible to align with that, but also structure things like praise or the type of work we give them, um, you know, or the recognition we give them to align with that motivation style. So let me provide a quick example. Yeah, that'd be great. So, so some folks are um, super motivated by a sense of belonging, right? These are folks that are called affiliators, right? And motivated by affiliation. And what drives me is working as part of a, a high-functioning team, collaborating with people, and having really deep relationships. Really motivating. It's why you know, one someone might come to work in the morning. Their manager might be motivated by a, an archetype called achievement, which is motivation by hitting goals, um, tackling really complex problems. Um, being challenged and being able to overcome those challenges. Mm -hmm. And so um, achievement-oriented people doesn't mean they don't like working with colleagues or don't like working as part of a team, but they're, they could be just as content as an individual contributor working on a hard problem yeah. as they could be working on a hard problem with a team. That's what motivates them is the, is the problem and the challenge and achieving the goal, right? And so what we often see is we have a manager – who's an achiever, who says, oh, I'm going to give Matt, because he's done so well and I want to reward him, I'm going to give him this new, exciting, challenging project that he's just going to be so thrilled to sink his teeth into and, and work on. And that's going to be such a reward for him. But Matt, if you're an affiliator, you think, why is my manager giving me more work and then expecting me to be excited about this? Right. Right. And so we, we often have this disconnect between what managers are motivated by and what their team members are motivated by. And so it's really important to understand, again, intrinsically and extrinsically what motivates someone um, to then tailor your approach as a manager. So the, the, the spot bonus for someone might mean nothing to someone else. And we often fall into that trap of motivating everyone on our team exactly the same way. Well, motivation is part of coaching. And uh, all too often, we're peanut buttering out the coaching, coaching everybody the same way. And what you're saying is, you know, you can't motivate the, everyone the same way either, right? I think I might have shared this story. I remember years ago, a good friend saying um, that, you know, he was a, a sales engineer, pre-sales consultant. So he was like a, the, the smart person who understood how the technology worked. And uh, he was part of the sales team and he would help advance the opportunities along. And he's like, Hey, our team had a great quarter. And so the, the reward for that is uh, this dinner at this really nice steakhouse in New York city. And he said, I said, well, you know, that sounds cool. Like nice night out with your peers. And, and he kind of said, I knew this. 
he's he's a very introverted person. And he said, he's like, you know, I don't want to hang out with with my my colleagues at work. I like them, but at the end of the day, when I go home, I, I want to just want to be with my my family. And he said, by the way, I live in whatever, like Stanford, Connecticut. So now I have to like take the train home instead of at whatever, 5 30, 6 o'clock at like midnight after dinner. And oh, by the way, I gotta get up and take the train back in at six o'clock in the morning again. This was back in the day where people commuted. And he's like, that's not a reward for me. This is like, a, this is a penalty, you know? And uh, I just remember that. So um, whether you're an affiliator uh, or, you know, an achiever, you're motivated uh, in, in different ways. Um, what should, you know, I guess, can everybody be motivated? Like that's a, that's a, a question that just went through my mind. Can any, can everyone be motivated? That's a, you know, that's a good question. Um, I don't know the, I don't know the scientific or research-backed answer to that. Um, I, you know, for, for most folks that are, for all folks that I've worked with, it's, it's about cracking the nut of, of what is motivating, right? Like figuring it in, in, for some folks, it's harder than others to, to figure that out. Um, but you know, my, my assumption or my hypothesis is that yes, we all are motivated by something. It's just figuring out what, and I think what's, what you brought up that was so important is coaching plays such a huge part in this because you're asking those open-ended questions in you're, you're learning from your team member, what's important to them, what makes them happiest, right? Why do they come to work in the morning? And in asking those questions can help to, um, you know, ascertain what's going to be motivating to them. So mm-hmm. it's coaching is such a such an important way to to get at, you know, what is that nugget that's going to make someone super excited about about what they're doing and, and want to come to work each day. And um, as a reminder, and I'm just grabbing your your book here, so we'll put the link in, but. Uh, it's bringing up the boss. And uh, Rachel, in your book, you define coaching as a technique used to guide one toward greater self-awareness, clarity on decisions, and choices, uh, and, and reflection on past behaviors. Right. So, just a framework, like on on uh, what is coaching, and you know, we're, we've been talking about like how to use coaching to motivate and make work more meaningful. In the book, you talk about. Um, uh, how, you know, in terms of help, helping it be more meaningful, how it's structured and how it's framed. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. And so um, this goes back to that myth, right? That the responsibility or, um, or one of the most critical actions of a manager is to help someone find meaning. And so then the natural question is, okay, well, how do I do that? Right. <laughs> Tactically. Right. Right. What's the to do um, when I get to work tomorrow to to actually do that? And and what we see is that there's there are a number of levers that managers can pull to help someone find more meaning. And I'll I'll just kind of list out a couple. Um, the first, to your point, is around structure, like how we structure someone's day to day work or day to day tasks has a direct influence on how much meaning they find in that task. So. You could have someone who has this, two people who have the same exact set of responsibilities, but because manager A structures those responsibilities in one way and manager B structures them in another way, 
um, it could have vastly different impact on meaning. One example of structure is how much autonomy you're able to give someone over their, their day. And so we think about micromanagers, right, who give yeah. people no autonomy. And what we see is when we're, we're super in the weeds with someone and we're dictating every single step of what they do, that decreases meaning in their work, right? They don't have the joy of discovering how to do something themselves. And so if we can identify outcomes, identify a vision, and then let someone figure out how to get there, that's super meaningful for people. And so that's an example of, of structure, right? How you structure someone's task. I like to use the example, we say, hey, we need to get to the top of this mountain. And then the person says, okay, I'm going to take a helicopter to get there. And someone else says, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take a donkey. doesn't matter. We just want to get to the top. And I've heard the phrase, uh, strategy is non-negotiable, but style is, right? You need to get to the top of the mountain. How you do it doesn't necessarily, doesn't always matter. And maybe the best style is your own unique style and people are going to do it in, in different ways. The micromanager says, you must do it and you must do it this way. And they're watching every step up the mountain to see if you took that step the right way. A lot of managers are so fearful, right? That's their biggest fear. I don't want to be that micromanager, like the dreaded micromanager, but almost they, they over index toward, toward not managing at all and not setting clear expectations. What's the port importance of setting clear expectations? Yeah, it's, it's, um, and this is the first chapter in my book because it's, it's so important. And this is also where coaching comes in, right? Is a clear expectation is what's the end goal and why, right? It's why are we doing this? And, and it's, Hey, here's an example of what good or success looks like in timing, right? So we're really clear about that. And so for some folks, they say, okay, I, I can run with this. Um, and there is a fear from managers of, wait a minute, if I let go, what's going to, what's this end, what's this end goal or vision going to look like? But this is where coaching comes in, right? Is you're then throughout the process, throughout them climbing the mountain, you can ask, okay, what would be an alternative way to do this? Um, what does success look like in your mind in terms of achieving this outcome or, uh, you know, what could you do differently in, in, in the next, you know, in the, in the next series of steps? And so you're getting people to, they still have the autonomy, but you're helping them get the rigor, right? And thinking through each of the steps that they're taking. And you can help first correct if, if you don't think it's going, it's going well. Um, and I think that's a really important distinction um, from, I'm just going to tell you every step of the way. And I, I think you called them uh, in the book, beautiful questions. Uh, you referred to them as, as that, right? Which, you know, the Socratic method, the, the asking questions like, Hey, what's another way to approach this? And I'm assuming the opposite and less effective way to do it is here's what you should do. And, and here's how you should do it. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about beautiful questions and then also feedback along the way? Look, I guess kind of beautiful questions and segue to once they start doing it, how do you provide feedback and what's the importance of feedback? So I was actually going to flip that. I'm going to talk about okay. first because if we go, go back to finding meaning, we talked about structure, how managers um, in their day-to-day -day can provide 
a different way of structuring work to get more meaning. And so this idea of autonomy, right? Setting expectations, but letting people figure out is a huge way of creating meaning. The other way of doing it is having feedback loops such that individuals know how their work is being used and the impact that it has. And what we see with feedback, you know, besides feedback being a really important motivator, a really important way to get people to change or reinforce behaviors, it also has a huge role in helping people find more meaning, right? Which is often not talked about with feedback. Didn't you equate it to, it's like underwear? <laughs> yeah, I also said that's a whole, really whole different conversation that feedback is like underwear. It's a gift we often want, but 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 we, we need, but don't actually want. Um, but feedback, if we think about positive feedback for a moment in the connection to meaning with positive feedback, you know, Matt, you send me a, you send me a sales plan, right? With all of your targets and, um, you know, your approach for the next six months and I'm your manager and I get it. And I say, wow, Matt, what an awesome job. You really rocked, you know, you really rocked the sales plan. Well done. Right. And I pat myself on the back as, as a manager. Cause I say, wow, I, you know, I, I, I didn't ignore Matt's email <laughs> and I was really, you know, offered lots of praise and, and, and positive reinforcement for, um, for what he did. That doesn't provide more meaning for an individual though. Right. Instead, if I said something like Matt, um, you know, your sales plan clearly identified uh, targets per, uh, you know, per region. And I loved how specific you were about the different um, steps and strategies you're going to take to reach out to them. And the impact on kind of this, this diligence and this attention to detail, the impact that it had was that it allowed me to go to senior leadership with much more confidence to say, this is how we're going to reach our sales targets. You know, moving forward, um, you can actually bring the same approach of specificity and attention to detail in, you know, the marketing plan that we build. And I think you'd really, you know, thrive in doing that there. And that email, that response creates much more meaning for you, right? Because you understand how your work and how your time impacted, you know, not just your day-to-day work, but mine as your manager and the, the, you know, company yeah, leadership yeah. and you find more meaning in that. And, um, it, it's a really easy way for managers and leaders to help their teams find, find more meaning and motivate people more to do great work. Um, when we have that specificity in giving feedback. So, so if they send you something, a, you're acknowledging it, right? I think, you know, you talked about the, about the importance of acknowledging when somebody does some work, don't just assume that you, they know you're, you're grateful, but then it's also, instead of saying, Hey, great job, great job. And then connect the dots to how this helps the team, how this helps the company, something like that, so that they can see like, yeah, first of all, there's, you're making that connection, right. Um, of like what they're doing and where it impacts. Uh, but you're, you're also building trust and confidence in that person, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. Folks know um, exactly why their work was good as opposed to just these platitudes, right? Right. 
you know, and then, then if you're just getting platitudes and you think, well, what, what about it was actually positive, you know, and, and then what's left unsaid, the, or what were there negative things about it, right? That they're not telling me because it's just masked in platitudes. And so it's really kind of the specificity. Why would, what made this good? What made this a great piece of work? And it's the connection to the broader team, to the impact it had, um, to, you know, to the kind of connection to the company mission or company goals. Those things create a ton of meaning for people. Oh, okay. Um, got it. Super helpful too. And so you talked about the positive feedback. And one of the challenges is as, as managers, we, we want to like, we want to give positive feedback and we're not always as specific as we need to be. But then also there's um, constructive feedback, negative feedback, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Can, can you, can you touch on that? Because I think many would, would say that's, that's a tough thing to do. Yeah. And, and it's funny, I, you know, the, I, again, I call constructive feedback as underwear, right. As, as a gift you, you probably need, but, but likely don't want, but that's, it's actually false. So what we see in research is that um, employees crave constructive feedback and don't feel like their managers give them enough of it. And on the flip side, managers are incredibly hesitant and, and often don't give constructive feedback. So you actually have this really powerful disconnect where managers um, from, from really legitimate fears of hurting someone's feelings or having an awkward conversation um, or, or, or you know feel, feeling like they're stepping out of bounds, there's this disconnect where they're not giving the feedback, yet their employees really, really want it and crave it. And so if we can get the, you know, if we can rebalance, it would be really powerful. Um, you know, Is that where beautiful questions come in? Um, mm, we'll say more what you mean by that or what you're thinking. Right, like, uh, yeah, and it might not. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, if I remember correctly, you know, well, questions in general and, and the beautiful questions help the manager connect more with his or her employee. So like, for example, the way I'm processing this in my simple mind is, um, oh, hey, you know, you, here's what you did that's really good with the specificity that you talked about. Um, on this topic over here with regard to your go-to-market plan, um, I like what you did here and here. You know, if there was one thing that, you know, might be missing or uh, one area where you struggled on this, what would it be? Right. And so it's asking questions to kind of segue over to that constructive feedback. And it's not, hey, this sucks. It's more of more of a Socratic method. That's where I was going with it. Yeah. So that's such an interesting point. Um, so when I, you know, I think what's hard is because we fear giving feedback, we have a hard time being precise and concise even if we know what someone needs to do to improve. And so often what I see with managers is they fall into kind of the Socratic method trap where they ask their team members, hey, what do you think is wrong with this? Or where do you think you could have done things better? Looks perfect to me. 
<laughs> right. When in reality, the manager from experience and from time actually knows exactly the behavior that needs to be changed. And what often happens is, is folks feel a little bit duped because, again, their manager isn't being straightforward and direct about, hey, you know, Matt, I observed that your, um, you know, I observed that your work plan was a couple of days late. Um, you know, the impact that it had is that I wasn't able to, uh, you know, I wasn't able to to give it to the client on time, which actually made the client um, kind of question our attention to detail and, and, and kind of question our commitment to the project. Um, you know, do you have any reactions to this or, or what do you think? Oh my God, Matt says, oh my gosh, I had no idea that this was on the work plan was due. I just assumed it, it you know, end of week meant Sunday versus Friday. And then we talk about how we can address this behavior moving forward. Um, a conversation like that, that's really straightforward and starts from an objective piece of data. Hey, the work plan was late, period. That's the data. As opposed to, um, hey, Matt, what do you think you could have done better on the work plan? Which uh, might be yeah. misleading. Or even worse is, hey, Matt, I'd love to give you some constructive feedback about um, how you're tardy with your work, right? Which is making a judgment call about you yeah. as opposed to just starting from an observable behavior, an observable action where we then can build the conversation from there. Right. I, it's not, it's not personal. It's not, I'm not, you're not calling me lazy um, or inconsiderate. You're just stating a fact. And then perhaps that, you know, now that you have that on the table, then perhaps questions and dialogue can ensue about, you know, going, you know, what, where appropriate. Exactly. And, um, and, you know, and you might come back to me and say, you know, Rachel, I actually have an email that says that the work plan was due on Sunday. <laughs> so, it, you know, it wasn't due on Friday. And then we have a conversation about, okay, how can we make our communication style better? Um, so we're not having these missteps, right? And it becomes a, it's a feedback conversation, right? It's the goal is to understand our own behaviors and other people's behaviors better. And it, it's not a, I'm trying to prove to you that I'm right and what you did was wrong. It's not a litigation. It's this conversation of, hey, I want to understand your behavior better and help you to change that behavior if it's not serving you well and not serving our team well or reinforce positive behavior. So so is feedback, it's super helpful. And we've, we've established that. Uh, employees want it. Managers are sometimes reluctant to give it, especially constructive feedback. Is it a nice to have or is it an obligation as a manager to provide feedback to your employees? It's a, um, I wish there were a stronger word than obligation because it's that important for someone's development. And, and what we actually see, there, there's, there's two things. So I remember when I was really early in my consulting career, I had a manager who at the time, right, I was 21, 22, I started my first kind of adult job and he was giving me feedback constantly, constructive feedback constantly. And he was a year older than me, right? And, and uh, you know, I had colleagues, uh, friends my own age in, in my workplace and their managers weren't giving them that same feedback. And I was like, oh man, I got the short end of the stick right? <laughs> with this guy who was just constantly on my back. And then in hindsight, I, you know, I think about how his interventions 
early in my career changed my trajectory versus him not saying anything and just letting these kind of little behaviors at the time, right? They weren't big behaviors, but they weren't serving me well in my development. He could have just not said anything and I would have just continued doing these for the, you know, in 15 years in my career, but he had the courage. I mean, took his role really responsible, uh, you know, really seriously in giving me the constructive feedback so that I could change those behaviors and it changed my career trajectory. And so man, it's, it's like such an important responsibility of managers. Do you remember an example? Develop. Hmm? I'm sorry. Do you remember an example? Like, do you remember an example of like the type of you know, feedback that was, uh, was like the underwear. You, you didn't want to hear it at the time, but, but. it was, I, I was like such a naive, you know, new employee. Like I remember like it would just drive me bananas when I would send him a slide deck and he would say, Rachel, like you need to use the, you know, you need to use the, the, the template, like each slide can't have a different color blue. Right. <laughs> I'd be like, Oh, I'm being so creative. And I'm like, why? Like, you know, and he'd be like, because when we have different colors of blue or, you know, when your boxes aren't left aligned in your deck, the client calls into question our attention to detail. Mm. And then when they call that into question, that huge financial model that you're building, they call all of your assumptions into question. And so that's why it's important to, you know, follow the template and left align your boxes on a PowerPoint deck. It's not just aesthetic right? It matters. I was like, oh, now I get it. Right. Well, and that ties back to your definition on coaching, which is, uh, guiding toward greater self-awareness. Hey, I, I wasn't aware of that. Um, and, uh, you know, clarity on decisions and choices like, Hey, I'm creative, different color slides and, and, um, reflection on past behaviors. Like it connects the dots. Like may, maybe the world isn't always the way I see it. Perhaps there's another way of looking at this thing that, I'd had no idea. Like I wasn't ignoring it. I just didn't know. I have no idea. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think the, you know, if there's one thing that listeners can do is just start giving your team members more feedback because they crave it. And um, if you don't, you might be inadvertently holding people back in their careers, which folks don't want to do, right? We want to help people develop. That's right. And it's a, it's a real miss if we just let people, because we're afraid of being mean, right? Um, if we let people continue with behaviors that, that aren't serving them well. Which is maybe a really good segue into why you wrote bringing up the boss in the first place. Like what compelled you to do that? Not an easy challenge. So um, about... Uh, Eight years ago, I joined a quickly growing healthcare startup as the chief people officer. And, you know, upon stepping into the role, what I pretty much immediately realized was that the managers in our company were really poorly equipped to manage. And, and part of it was, you know, part of it was startup specific where you get folks who, because they were early employees, Two years later, they're managing a team of 20, not because they're capable or, or competent manage, managing, just because they've been there the longest, right? Yeah. And these are yeah. people who were two years out of college, right? And then all of a sudden, they have a team of 20. And, um, and, and, and what I realized was that 
the managers were miserable and the team members were miserable because the managers wanted to do a good job and wanted to help their teams, but had no idea how to do it. So misery loves company. That's the good news. Totally. Right. So long story short is, um, I kind of went on a quest to find a management, um, like a management toolkit or a management workbook that just gave people basic tools to start implementing immediately in their into their day to day. And when I went out looking for something, and we were resource constrained and time constrained, right? Mm-hmm. So didn't have a lot of either. Couldn't send people off to training. Couldn't bring you know expensive trainers in. Couldn't find that resource. So what I started doing was every week I would send a tip that was based in kind of academic research and data, because especially in the people space, there's a lot of stuff that folks suggest doing that's not grounded in research, right? And so I would send a tip and, uh, okay, now practice it this week. I sent it to the whole company and I started to realize that people were forwarding those emails outside the company and so I, I started writing a blog for everyone. And then that blog became Bringing Up the Boss, um, which was really is really focused on practical tools and tips for, for managers to bring into their, into their day-to-day um, that's going to help build that muscle of management, right? It's a skill. It's a capability that you need to build. Right. Um, and so that's the, that's the, that, that was the birth of Bringing Up the Boss. Which is really cool because you didn't sit down and say, I want to be an author and I want to write a book and I want my name in lights. You were already doing it and you recognized it was helping people and it was just a way to you know, uh, package up all those blog posts and emails over the past you know, years or whatever and, uh, and provide that ni- nice package. Uh, that's really cool. My, my guess is uh, over the similar period of time, you, you learned some, some hard lessons along the way. Care to share any? Yeah. And, and in the book, I, 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 I talk about this thing that I, I have this like never again journal. And these are kind of mistakes that anyone who's in the position of management, you've probably made it once and you say to yourself, I will never again do this again. Right. Ra- Rachel, never again. And if I can uh, show it, uh, if, if specifically, if you are in charge of hiring people, and developing them and retaining them, you want to read this book um, because this whole thing about the never again journal, it's going to rub some tinfoil on a lot of cavities out there, Rachel. But I, I, I cut you off. What's the never again? <laughs> What's the never again journal? Yeah. And I think, you know, you hit on one where the, the hiring, I think there's a lot of never agains in hiring because the pain and the anguish and the heartache um, of dealing with someone that you didn't hire well is just enough to, you know, scare anyone into to making a great hiring process. And so, you know, things like hiring people based solely on cultural fit, right? Not vetting people well, like those are mistakes that like never again will I do that. Like I will always have a structured interview process that truly tests what we actually need in a role mm-hmm. as opposed to loose conversations to determine if we like the person, right? Because that recipe for disaster. So that's probably top on my list. Right. And the, uh, from a research perspective, there, I think the research supports that 
people don't have a structured interview process and they hire based on how they feel about that person. How they, do they like that person, which is a kind of a, a gut reaction. Um, and, you know, especially in, in the line of field, in the line of work that, that I've spent most of my career in, which is sales, uh, any good salesperson, any even decent salesperson should be able to connect with someone and make them make themselves likable in an interview. So uh, there's a saying that's hire, hire slow, fire fast is a reason for that, for that. Totally. Yeah. So, so, and I think the, um, you know, we're also, we tend to hire people who are like us because mm -hmm. we think that we're, you know, successful at our role. And so we're really biased towards people who remind us of ourselves. And that just, you know, creates yeah. a recipe for disaster. So um, you're at Georgetown, phenomenal school. Um, what do you love about teaching at Georgetown and, and the business school? Oh, there's too many things, too many things to list. I love, I absolutely love my job. Um, I feel so fortunate and lucky that I've landed in a place where, you know, I find meaning every day. And that was something that I had been missing in, in earlier parts of my career um, was this idea of like, how, how is, how do I have meaning in what I do? And, um, and you know, I finally feel like I found that as a professor and as, you know, being able to connect with practitioners, which I still do very much so, mm -hmm. really important, important part of my role that I'm not just, you know, in the ivory tower, right. what's going on in the world. Um, but by far, the ability to deeply connect with students, you know, makes the job why I think it's the best job in the world. Um, and, and what I found is that students, like so many of us, are looking for um, a deep sense of belonging, right? In, in, in the classroom, I have a huge opportunity to create that sense of belonging and allow students to explore themselves better and explore their relationships with other people better um, and, and, and feel a sense of belonging and, and to see people change over the course of, of a semester and get to know themselves better and, and, and create a culture and a community in class. It's just incredibly powerful for me. You know, um, a, a word that I found myself underlining a lot when I was reading your book was the word curious um, or, or curiosity. And in fact, it inspired me to, I'm listening to a book right now called A Curious Mind. Um, it was written by, Brian, I don't know if it's Brian Glazer or Brian Grazer. He's a Hollywood producer. And uh, you know, I, I found the books like super fascinating, and I, this whole topic of curiosity is is curiosity important, and and if so, like how does it apply to what you're doing, and you know what you see in your students? Such a good question, um, and I think it goes back to to the beautiful questions, right? Yeah, in the power of those beautiful questions, in that you know, as as managers, as leaders, as a as a you know as a professor. Um, letting curiosity guide you, right? Like understanding why someone behaves the way they do or, or what's driving them or what's motivating them is just, you know, first of all, helpful in terms of having a productive relationship with someone and super interesting, right? You learn more yeah. about yourself, you learn more about them, um, you know, and, and, and like going back to feedback, the idea of curiosity and feedback, if you enter 
a feedback conversation with true curiosity. Oh yeah. I want to, I want to learn why someone might've done something the way they did and, 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 and truly be curious about what we can do to make it better. That's going to be a totally different conversation from one where I think, okay, I'm here to tell the person what they did wrong. Right. And so I think curiosity, just keeping the lens of curiosity and ambient conversations, conversations with students is just an incredible approach and way of being. Well, I, I would imagine, you know, there's the, the saying, people don't care what you know until they know that you care, right? You're the professor, you have all this experience, right? They look up to you because of your title and because of your track record, but they probably go the extra mile for you and for themselves when they know that you're curious ab about them and about the the topic that you're you're talking about and you're not just going through the motions to get through the syllabus and get through the day would that be fair totally yeah i totally agree with that um so a couple of rapid fire questions as we approach approach uh, closing out here um what, what's a common challenge on which people other companies other individuals come and seek your advice yeah so i think um you know in the big one and and, and probably because of the book i've written is um, I get a lot of uh, just management challenges, right? Like, like how do I how do I better equip my managers? And so it's a it's a frequent um, frequent question. CEOs often struggle with it, right? Like, how do I how do I get my people to be better managers? And I think one of the things I I I, I would I counsel folks on is management is a whole bunch of different things. Like, what specifically? What, what capabilities do you specifically need to build in your team? Mm. Is your, are your managers not good at motivating? Are they not good at having difficult conversations? Are they, you know, what's the thing? Um, but I usually get a lot of challenges around just, hey, my people aren't good managers. What do I do? Yeah, a lot, a lot of times they they got the battlefield promotion. It's like congratulations, you were good as an individual contributor. You know, now you're a manager. Thoughts and prayers. Good luck. Um, I, I totally get it. And and Rachel, you you've touched on this question a little bit. Um, I don't know if you can expand on it, but tell us about a time in your career when you were the recipient of really good coaching, even though you might not have thought it was great coaching at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, a particular, I, I had an executive coach. I was um, on the executive team of a, a new startup uh, that was at um, at J.P. Morgan Chase, and you know I was struggling with my CEO at the time around uh, the CEO kind of not not taking the feedback that I was giving her, not changing right based on this feedback that I was giving her, and um, and the coach at the time said this really insightful thing where he was like. First, you know, it's effective feedback, right? Like it's not all feedback. So sometimes I think when we think about feedback and I just had this conversation with a CEO last week where he was like, it's my obligation to tell my team members everything that they did wrong. You know, and performance reviews are coming up and I have this list of everything that they, they didn't do well over the course of the year because I care about feedback. And it's like, yeah, but feedback's a motivator ultimately. And so you have to also be strategic about feedback. What feedback do you want to give? What's the behavior you want to change? A laundry list of things someone did wrong because you feel strongly that you give feedback, that's not effective, right? Yeah. And yeah. so that was the first thing the coach talked about was, is your, like, 
what's strategic and effective about your feedback? It's not just telling her all the areas that you think she can, you know, do better. And then the second was, hey, especially when you're working with a CEO, like there's going to be areas where they're, they're weak at, right? Like great CEOs spike in certain areas and then are low in other areas. And making them spending all of your time and energy and effort getting those low areas higher, that's not a good use of time. Rather, look at the position you're in you spike in the areas where your CEO is low in. So lean into that, right? Yeah. Fill the gap as opposed to spending all this time and energy and effort and emotional you know, resources complaining that your CEO isn't good at the things that, that you want her to be good at, if that makes sense. A hundred percent. And then it was great advice and it completely changed the way that I work with people. Thank you. So- I'm always fascinated with like what people do outside of their day-to-day job, their day-to-day career, and believe that, you know, we we don't live to work, we work to live. And, you know, the more hobbies and interests that we have, you know, the better. And some people shy away from that, especially earlier in their career, because they work, 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 I got to prove myself. Um, you know, uh, and I know that uh, you know, because uh, I, my my wife, Carlene, uh, introduced us and you met at, uh, you know, through, through yoga. So, you know, just using that as an example, as a proxy for something outside of work, what got you into that? And how have you leveraged anything that you might've picked up from yoga along the way into doing what you do today? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I absolutely love yoga and I actually want a, a, a book, a future book to be the lessons of yoga as applied to management, because I think it has deeply influenced how I lead and and how I show up at work. And I think what's often hard is that, you know, we might go through a a self-discovery journey or a journey of authenticity outside of work. And then how do we actually bring that into work? Mm -hmm. And there's that barrier, right? But it's, it's so important to, 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 kind of transpose those things into our day to day. And, you know, I think the big thing with, with yoga that I learned that's um, helped me in, 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 in my work and my career is curiosity, right? Questioning and, and, and curiosity and this idea of, of patience and acceptance, yeah. right? And, and it's, it's made me much, um, you know, much more patient in my, in the workplace, right? And non-reactive. And I think that's been hugely beneficial um, to my career where I can kind of take that step back and say, how am I reacting to this situation? Why am I reacting? What's going on here? Right? What's really behind this? Um, And and that's, that's all from yoga. Yeah. I think if you just look at different ways to take what you're doing, you know, and what your interests are outside of your day-to-day role, there's probably a myriad of ways to kind of bring those learnings or those teachings into doing what you do to make you more effective. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, Rachel, in, in kind of closing out here, what advice would you have for, let's say, a, an individual contributor like a sales rep or a manager who feels they're not growing under the leadership of their manager but they like the company. They like what they do. They just, they don't feel like they're getting 
something from that, from their specific manager. And I know you, you talked about the importance of owning your development. So what, what advice would you have there? And this is also a mistake I made early in my career is that I was passive about my development and assumed that my manager owned my development and my, my manager was the one responsible for helping me to grow. And of course it is a huge part of your manager's role, but then that means to your point, it's manager dependent. And unfortunately what research shows is that there's more bad managers out there than there are good managers. And so the advice is own your own development, which that, that means a couple different things. First, it means kind of identifying where and how you can grow and, and, and what you can do. And then second, it means potentially coaching and guiding your manager to help them help you, right? Be directive with them about what you need from them. Um, and that's going to make their job easier, right? Because it, it takes some of the cognitive load off. Um, and it will help you. So I would just say, lean into owning your development and, and figuring out what you want and need and articulating that to your manager. Well, can, can you have a quick example of what that could sound like? Uh, you know, what a topic could be or, because you know, I know that there's people out there that say, how do I go to my manager and tell them what I need to, you know, be coached on, right? It's a, uh, it's hard. Yeah. So, um, you know, for example, maybe you're a, um, you know, you're, you do, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of maybe prospecting or building databases of, of potential prospects, but you don't actually get to do sales calls, right? Mm -hmm. um, you're a junior person and you love to have experience working with, with clients, right? And, but you know that that's not a possibility because of the structure of your company. And so what you can do is you can say to your manager, hey, I want to build these skills. What are ways I could build these skills outside of actually having sales calls? And maybe once a week you pitch to your manager, right? Um, and you, you, you kind of practice the, the skill of, of, of client-facing client work, um, but you're not actually doing it with a client, right? So we often think about skills and capabilities as um, context-driven, Right, like to get client to to, to I want to I want to do more client facing work. But there's actually a lot of things behind that that you can build before you ever face a client. Yeah. Right, and thinking about well, what are the skills and capabilities required for being great at client facing work, and then how do I build those before I ever meet a client? Similarly, someone might say, "Hey, like I really, you know, on my development plan, I really want to be a manager." I want to be a people leader. And then your manager says, yeah, but there's no space. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, well, what are the skills or capabilities you can start building and practicing now that a great manager has or needs? And you can build those without managing anyone. And then when there is space and it's between that you, that person who asked for help and kind of built, you know, took a couple of steps up the, the ladder and went out of your way to practice when it's a choice between you and someone else, perhaps you get the nod because you uh, went the extra mile. Awesome. Well, um, I think that's a really good place to leave it. Uh, you know, we learned so much. I, I learned so much today. Uh, we, we talked about um, using feedback as a motivator. The fact that it, you know, it's it, an obligation to give feedback is probably not even a strong enough word. We talked about the different archetypes of achiever versus affiliation. Um, you know, we talked about the importance of owning 
your own development and feedback is underwear. So we covered a lot of ground. Um, Rachel, I really appreciate you spending the time with us today. Thank you. It was my pleasure to be here. Awesome. Um, and if you're tuning in and you've made it this far, firstly, thanks for listening. Uh, secondly, it would mean a lot if you could leave a rating wherever you consume the podcast, Apple, Spotify, wherever it might be. Um, YouTube, where you can see the full length video, leave a comment, tell us what you like, tell us what you'd like to see more of. We want to bring the best content to you. So again, um, Rachel Pacheco, thanks so much for investing time with us today. And uh, with that, it's been a pleasure to host this conversation on behalf of Coach to Scale. And until next time, remember, coach them if you want to keep them. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Coach to Scale, How Modern Leaders Build Coaching Cultures. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at coachem.io. That's C-O-A-C-H-E-M dot I-O. And follow us on Twitter at Coachem Now. See you all next week. Thanks for joining. And remember, coach them if you want to keep them.